0: Hey, it's one American podcast with Scott Horton. Sorry about that intro. I'm not sure if it's really your speed or not. I don't know you well enough to be presumptuous like that, that uh, intro might be, um, Oh, like, I like
1: and liberty and property and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Cool. So dude,
0: um, I think we were on a podcast together with, um, uh, Reed and Liberty lock pod, um, like oh, okay. weeks ago when I was in Illinois, uh, Dave, uh, um, uh, Smith was on it. Uh, I can't remember what we were even talking about. Yeah, there but, was a, um, a whole
1: crew of people on there. Yeah, I remember
0: exactly, exactly. So I got, I was lucky enough to make it into like the, you know, the top ten. I don't know what what color that medal is, but <laughs> no, no that was cool. Um, so, um, uh, I've been following you on Twitter for some time, and I actually know very little about you other than the fact that the, a lot of people that I really like and respect, um, like and respect you quite a bit. So I just thought it would be a fun conversation.
1: Sure. Well, okay. Um, I'm a pirate radio guy from Austin, Texas, basically a skater, a driver. And a, I, I started hanging around with the antiwar.com guys right around the dawn of the terror war and was very thrilled to find out that Rothbardian libertarians owned that URL and were, you know, holding down that whole effort on the part of the old right and the libertarian movement during that time and ever since then. And, um, basically I'm an interview host. I've done 5,600 something interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy. Um, but some stuff on the police state and Austrian economic theory and that kind of stuff here and there too. And, um, and I wrote these two books. You can see, Oh, you can see one of them over my right shoulder there. Enough already is the latest one time to end the war on terrorism. And before that was fool's errand time to end the war in Afghanistan, which started out as chapter two of this one, and turn into a whole book. So then I went back and started over and did this one, which is all the Middle East wars from Jimmy Carter through right now, uh, or through the end of the Trump era. And um, uh, uh, and so I'm the editorial director of antiwar.com now. And I'm also, I founded uh, with Sheldon Richmond and William Norman Grigg. I founded the Libertarian Institute back in 2016. And so I'm the director of that now. And we've got a great group of podcasters and writers and everything there at libertarianinstitute.org. And that's basically it. and oh, I say I'm on the radio in L.A. on Sunday mornings on KPFK, the uh, Pacifica radio network station there.
0: So I um I own a small advertising business and it is basically consumed all of my focus until, I don't know, six months ago. <laughs> Eight months ago, maybe, and it's gotten to the point with all the political stuff that's going on, um, that it's it's abs- it's like totally consuming. It's hard for me to think about anything else. What was it that got you consumed? Because it's not like an, it's not immediately obvious that it's like lucrative. It, it's not lucrative to be. Uh, interested in politics and it's the amount of time that it takes to study uh, and the amount of time it takes to write books and the amount of time it takes to do podcasts i mean there's there's so much give I've always you
1: have to put in like yeah. yeah you know yeah. you ever have the thing where like on uh well i haven't been on facebook in many years now but you know the thing where you're on facebook and you talk to your old friend from elementary school for and you text back and forth for an hour or whatever and say hi. So I ran into an old friend of mine that I had gone to elementary school and junior high with. And he said, oh, you're the guy from antiwar.com now, huh? That's no surprise to me because I remember even back in third grade, he used to do nothing but just talk mad shit about Ronald Reagan all the time, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, I don't even remember, like, what was I even saying in what, 84 or whatever, you know, when I was in third grade, 83, 84. Um, but I was, you know, luckily... I was, you know, I turned four or I was, I was four when Reagan was inaugurated. So, you know, before that, I don't remember anything. And then, so my entire political childhood, my parents are not radical leftists of by any measure, but they're just run of the mill Democrats, essentially centrist type Democrats. Um, Mm -hmm. So I was lucky enough to not be raised to, you know, revere Ronald Reagan and George Bush, the way a lot of kids in my neighborhood were, you know? So I was raised, not necessarily anti-government, but at least anti this government. In fact, one of my earliest memories is my mom, like watching the black and white TV in the kitchen and being upset, and me asking her what's wrong. I'm four years old. She's like, a very bad man is becoming the president today. You know, so um, then by the time that was over, I mean, I was young enough to understand that they were selling missiles to the Ayatollah, their avowed enemy who they were backing Saddam Hussein against at the same time and then taking the money to pay for these right wing death squads in Nicaragua. And then the death squads in Nicaragua were selling cocaine to poor black people in in L.A. and poor white people in the South. And then the same government was waging the just say no war on drugs against them all and locking people in jail for consuming the cocaine that their own government, the the government itself, was bringing into the country at the time. And I understood that much before Bush Sr. was gone. I mean, I think even before Reagan was gone, I had somehow learned about the cocaine. I don't know exactly where I first learned about the the Contra cocaine, but it was very early on. It might have even been because John Kerry, Senator Kerry investigated it back then. And so there was some official talk of that. And maybe maybe I just heard that from like bigger kids in the neighborhood or, you know, somewhere that had gotten around, you know. So that was before even H.W. Bush. And then when the first Iraq war happened, I thought that was a lot of fun. I was 15 and I like fighter jets and explosions and, you know, tanks and cool, like, you know, Discovery Channel militarism, I guess you could call it, right? Um, sure. World War II but, in color. Yeah, but I remember objecting to the idea that, Bush has a Security Council resolution from the United Nations. And so he doesn't need a declaration of war. And I just knew from government school that only Congress can declare war and George Washington and then made sure that that was very deliberate, that the president can't get us into a war. And this is like, he's going around Congress. And Bush senior had said then that even if Congress says, no, I'm still doing it anyway. And whether they authorize it or not, and even if they deauthorize it and try to like ban me from doing I'm still doing it because I have a UN Security Council resolution. And I knew that that was wrong. And then, you know, he talked about the new world order all the time, which, you know, in conspiracy theory, culture means one world government not run out of the United States, but run at the expense of the United States, where eventually we lose our independence too, just like we've been doing to everybody else taking theirs from them. That we'll lose ours too. And that's kind of the whole, you know, from people to the right of the Bushes, um, that was the conspiracy theory, you know, of the 90s. And then he only did one term and in came Bill Clinton. And in conspiracy theory culture at the time, in right wing conspiracy theory culture at the time, what was wrong with Bill Clinton was that he was really secretly George Bush's agent. And that because Clinton was a member of all the same elite organizations as Bush. They sold him as the boy from Hope, Arkansas, but he's a member of the trilateral commission in New York city with David Rockefeller and all these powerful people. And that, you know, he was clearly an establishment guy. He was an insider, um, who had, you know, very powerful connections, but then what the conspiracy kooks knew and were right about was that, And right-wingers, they weren't loyal to the Bushes, right? The Bushes are skull and bones men, blue bloods from back east, right? They're not of us at all, at least in this era. This is before W. Bush, right? And what they got right was that when Ronald Reagan was bringing in all that cocaine into the United States, it wasn't just coming into South LA, it was coming into MENA, Arkansas under Governor William Jefferson Clinton who all of this was happening, obviously, with his participation and uh, with his knowledge that there's this covert operation going on where they're running drugs and guns and money back and forth and using the Nella airstrip outside of Mena, Arkansas, to do it all. And so Clinton was in on that. So if you understand anything about who these people are at all, you understand that the Bushes are the blue bloods. Right, they're like the Pierces and the Walkers and the Abbott's and the Whitneys and all these important families from American history. Right. Who's Clinton? He's the bastard son of nobody. Right. So why you know what's special about him is he's connected to all these guys. And in the Ron Cop Contra operation, it's not like he's running things. It was the vice president, HW Bush, was running that thing out of the vice president's office where he could get away with it. No one could oversee what he was doing. Who was Bill Clinton? He was some governor who'd been brought in and as like a trusted guy to be part of the thing. So that was how I started off my understanding of the Clinton administration when I was like 16, 17 years old or whatever, as a high school kid, as he was being inaugurated. And all my teachers were like, wow, a liberal is being elected, we're so impressed. And I'm like, oh man, this guy, is part of the power elite. It's all a big scam, you know. Bill Cl- uh, uh, Bill Hicks had he saw right through it right during that same time frame, and he had that sa- he had that great bit about how as soon as Bill Clinton bombed Baghdad, he goes, "I knew Bill Clinton was one of the boys as soon as he bombed Baghdad over the alleged <coughs> fake assassination attempt against George H W Bush in Kuwait, which was totally fake." Bill Clinton bombed Baghdad. And Bill Hicks goes, I get a feeling like what happens is when you become president, they take you back. You know how you have your big gala and your big party and everything. And then they take you back in this dark, smoky room with these 12 industrialist, capitalist, you know, power mongers. And a screen comes down. There's a guy chomping on a big cigar. The screen comes down and they show you footage of the Kennedy assassination from an angle you've never seen before. <laughs> and then they say, you got any questions? Uh, just what my agenda is. First, we bomb Baghdad. You got it. And so, I mean, I was just, call that like my, my red pill, right there. Was I, I grew up, my entire childhood was the Republican power establishment in power. And then the first time the other party wins, the guy that wins is one of them. You know, and this is widely known and even celebrated now that as soon as Clinton beat H. W. Bush, which isn't it funny that it was the third-party candidate was Ross Perot, who helped run guns during Iran-Contra for the CIA from his businesses in Mexico, that he came in to be the spoiler to get the loyal Democrat in there. I mean, that was part of my you know red-pill and conspiracy lore at that time too. Was that that whole thing was obviously a hoax? Bush Senior was willing to lose to to throw that election essentially because they needed a Democrat to get NAFTA passed, you know, and this kind of thing. I don't know if that's all really true, but that was the way I looked at it at the time. So, and then they killed the Branch Davidians. I mean, right then, like a hundred days in, this is the whole, this is the beginning of the Clinton government was the siege at Waco. And, um, you know, it wasn't, I mean, for the most part, it was the it was the FBI, the ATF and the FBI that did that but bill clinton gave the final order and at the very end of his presidency he admitted it finally that he was the one who told janet reno to send the tanks on and to do the final assault that ended up killing 80 people including 17 kids and you know gassing them and crushing them and burning them machine gunning them to death this horrible massacre like it was a it was our foreign policy on this little plot of land in central texas of all things it's just crazy if you don't know anything about that, check out the the documentary Waco: The Rules of Engagement. That might have been before your time. Um, that's a good introduction to that story, a sound one. Um, but so then, I mean, that was it, man. And um, Waco radicalized me and a lot of other people. And you know, I'm not sure now if I knew about Ruby Ridge before that or not. I think maybe I had heard a little bit about what was going on up there, but not too much. But I ended up learning a lot about it afterwards. And then you know, those actions. By the FBI, made a hell of a lot of radical right wingers and a hell of a lot of libertarians out of regular people, you know. And so I was already very predisposed to that kind of thing. And so then in Austin, there was um, a really, um, you know, uh, what thorough, well established um, uh, community access TV. And so Alex Jones was on there, but so were a lot of libertarians and militia guys and end times. there's there's one guy on there, always talking about Mikhail Gorbachev was Satan and was gonna make the take us over. Um, but there are a lot of militia guys, a lot of conspiracy theorist guys, and a lot of good libertarians on there, Terry Liberty Parker and a lot of other great libertarians were on there. So that was a big exposure to things. And then, you know, of course, Harry Brown ran for president in ninety six which was huge. And then I barely took note of Ron Paul during that same campaign season. That was when he ran for Congress again. And I heard him on the radio one time for a little bit, but it wasn't a very good or important interview or whatever. I didn't get much out of it. He's just some guy running for Congress. I don't know who he is, but Mm -hmm. then he won. And then I saw him on C-SPAN in 1997 and it was probably right around May 97, I think it was like the spring of 97. So like, I, I got my, uh, I was uh, 10 years ahead of everybody who got red-pilled on Ron Paul's Giuliani moment where he fought Giuliani over the causes of the motivation for the attackers of September 11th there. But so for me, it was 10 years before that, watching him on C-SPAN accusing George Bush of selling chemical weapons to Saddam Hussein right up until the time that Hussein invaded Kuwait with American permission to go ahead and invade Kuwait. And I remember going, wow, what a ballsy congressman to say such a thing on C-SPAN on the House floor. And then at the bottom of the screen, it said, Ron Paul R. Texas. And I was like, no way. Because, and you know, this is also, you're a bit younger than me, I can tell. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Bush Sr., was like sorta kinda nominally a Texan there for many years and was a very important, you know, he came down here and made his fortune in oil, was a very important guy in Texas politics in Houston. He'd run for Senate, I guess, for House. I don't think he ever won, or maybe he won for House for one term or something, He ran for Senate and lost. But, you know, he was not in the way that W. Bush is known as a Texan, but he was sorta kinda known as a Texan. He was certainly a very powerful you know character obviously his right hand man james baker the third uh was you know is a houston lawyer that represents all the oil companies down there and that kind of thing so for ron paul to be willing to say that about hw bush on you know on the con in the congressional record on the right. house floor like that in the same to state me at that time, right and this is the age before the internet right this is it's not like now where everybody has an opinion and everybody can tweet it all day long if they want. The only people who got to have their opinions heard was, you know, TV and, you know, people who have like real media careers. The average person, all you could do is call in a talk radio show, right? Or maybe get an access TV channel. Even that is like a special gig for a very small ham radio, of people. you know? Yeah. And ham radio. Yeah. Nobody's going to listen to that. That's, you know micro audiences um but you know there's no way really to talk back so to have someone like ron paul saying things like that on c-span it was like you don't get to hear anybody say something like that on tv ever and here's a republican congressman essentially accusing hw bush of treason or i guess the way i took it at the time was that he was saying he was still selling them chemical weapons after the start of desert shield and the build-up before the war and our invasion but I think I must have understood that wrong. Now that I think back on it, I think I misunderstood it then. And he was just saying he was still selling them chemical weapons up until the time that Iraq invaded Kuwait, which is still bad enough, right? I think I misunderstood that and gave Ron even more credit They're like, wow, he was selling them weapons even leading up right up to the war itself, even during the buildup against him. Holy crap, you know? So anyway. But that's how I found Ron Paul. And then so Harry Brown and Ron Paul are two of the greats. I mean, you look at them both of the all time greatest libertarians in American history. And they're both men of class and character. You know, both of them, you know, um, wonderfully, happily married types with no scandals. You know, Ron has got 18 grandkids or 25 by now or whatever it is, Um, you know, still married to his high school sweetheart. Um, and a doctor, not a lawyer and a, a guy whose voting record backs up every word out of his mouth, which is correct about everything. And I know, him cause I've interviewed him 30 times. And if I ask him, well, what do you think about the thing in Korea? He knows everything about it. You know, he goes, well, you know, president moon is proposing this and Trump is saying that and what they should do on the, when they meet on the 26th, they should, you know what I mean? Like he knows everything about it, about whatever it is that we're talking about. Um, and Harry Brown was the same way he died in about 2004, but when he died, he was writing a book called the war racket, which was going to be about every war since world war one and how it was all a scam. And it was all against you. And it was all, you know, rent seekers using the government against the rest of the people of the country for their own benefit. And, um, and, and both of them, you know, great champions of peace in the era of the terror war and, and speakers of the truth. And to me, that's what is, you know especially in the mold of Ron Paul. And that's what is important about libertarianism is because we're not beholden to power or partisanship in any way. I mean, even if you're part of the libertarian party, still, it's not like there's any power at stake. There's no power there. You know what I mean? It's a vehicle for you know trying to radicalize people and educate people. And in some cases, win on you know local elections and, and, and statewide elections or whatever, but you're not gonna win the US Senate on a libertarian ticket. They'll find a way to prevent that no matter what. But, um, and so because we're not compromised, we can just tell the truth. And Ron Paul, of course, he had this advantage. He was a Republican, but he had delivered like two thirds of the population of his district. Right. Where they were like in the Johnson family, all seven of us vote Paul because he had been the obstetrician for their entire brood. Right. And so like he just had his district locked down, like all the money in Israel couldn't stop him from getting reelected no matter what. So they just didn't try. They just let him go, you know, and, and get up there and give his speeches and try to ignore him you know, as best they could, but he was a huge inspiration to me and to a lot of other people. And because he was, he was good on everything. I go back, I quote him in my book, um, where, you know, in 1997 and 1998 and over and over again, he's warning that Bill Clinton's Iraq policy, bombing Iraq from bases in Saudi Arabia is going to get us attacked by terrorists. Okay. He's warning that in 1997, 10 years later, he tells Giuliani in that debate, the reason we got attacked by those terrorists is because we were bombing Iraq from bases in Saudi Arabia. That's the truth. And then Giuliani said, how dare you take that back? And Ron goes, no, it's called blowback. The CIA coined the phrase. It means consequences of CIA policies, man. You know, this is what happens. If you think you can go around the world killing people and never suffer consequences from that, You act at our own peril. You're acting blindly in a way that's going to get our country in trouble. And, you know, you think about that, that that moment changed Ron Paul from this little old congressman that nobody even knew who he was to all of a sudden he's a global superstar and more importantly, an American one and and millions of people, especially I mean, Look, not that many leftists. I and mean, there were some leftists who were impressed enough and liberals who were impressed enough to follow Ron. it was almost entirely libertarians and conservatives and right wingers who went for his message. I mean a lot of college that. kids. A lot of yeah, college yeah, kids liked college him kids. too
0: because he was earnest. Kind of like kids. it was kind of like the Bernie phenomena, ironically, given that they're pr- pretty much opposites. But,
1: but also like AM Talk Radio, too. You know what I mean? Like moms and pops and churches full of Christians and and you know, conservative American patriotic Republican types, people who just a few minutes ago were George W. Bush supporters. And then they rallied to Ron Paul because essentially he fed them the most bitter pill of all, which was that September 11th was essentially America's fault. It was Bill Clinton's fault for bombing Iraq from bases in Saudi Arabia for eight years you know, and H.W. Bush before him, that that's what had brought that on. Nobody wants to hear that. Your mom and dad don't wanna hear that. And Ron Paul was like, look, mom and dad, that's the truth, you understand me? That's what happened. And it's important that we understand that that's what's going on so we can stop doing the kinds of things that put us in danger. And people said, you know what? Holy shit, I can't believe I just saw a politician treat me with respect enough to just tell me the truth about what the hell is really going on around here. And you can tell when Giuliani denounced him, Giuliani didn't even know what the hell he was talking about. Giuliani said, that's one of the craziest things I've ever heard. And I've heard a lot of crazy explanations for 9-11. And as you know, there are a lot of crazy explanations for 9-11, but it was blowback from America bombing Iraq from bases in Saudi Arabia to Giuliani. That was the wildest thing he ever heard. Except that if you knew anything about it at all you knew that Osama bin Laden had been saying since 1996 since 1996 we're at war with you because you're bombing Iraq from bases in Saudi Arabia Right almost well, like the and hostage over situation and over, and over again
0: it's just like you the know? hostage situation for, from a couple of weeks ago here in Texas where the FBI is like you know we're still we still don't know the motive and the dude is literally screaming the motive while he's holding people hostage it's like All you have to do is watch the tapes of of these radicals saying why they're they're pissed off. They tell you why they're pissed off. I mean, even the Columbine kids had a fucking manifesto. You know, as evil as that was what the Columbine kids did, they had their reasons. (laughs) Like, just read the fucking manifesto.
1: (laughs) And then, so then that's the last part to the answer to your question is, once September 11th happened and these guys went on the biggest bullshitting spree in world history, Then and everyone lined up, I got to serve my country by supporting the war. I'm going to send my boy to join the army like we didn't already have a standing army capable of going to eastern Afghanistan. We we need to everybody needs to send their son to join the army. Now, everybody needs to call talk radio to say, I just am concerned that George Bush isn't blowing up enough people fast enough. And I decided, you know what, I'm signing up on the other side of that. And frankly, knowing that antiwar.com was there. And I remember checking and reading and Justin Ramondo, because I didn't really even have the internet at that time. And I had read antiwar.com before, but I wasn't like a full on Ramondo junkie yet, you know? But I remember tuning in and checking antiwar.com and it was good. You know, they were still antiwar. They weren't saying, oh, now everything's changed. And so now we're stupid you know, they didn't do that. They stayed good from the very beginning and they're running Ron Paul articles on their site. And I'm like, yeah, this is my crew. And I, then, like I was mentioned, I was a conspiracy nut, like along the lines of the one world government stuff, which I should have been over that after the Kosovo war. Dude, I mean, that's bullshit. To, be, to give myself a little bit of credit, I was pretty smart for a kook and my, my, uh, my conclusions about the idea that they were really building a world federal government were based on some real things like, for example, when the Clinton people were expanding NATO, they were saying, and this turned out not to be reality after Kosovo and after, especially W. Bush came in with Dick Cheney and their policy. But in the nineties they were saying, listen, we're going to bring Russia into NATO. And I thought, see, that's the skull and bones, Hegelian dialectic there, right? You go thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Now we join together and now we go to war against Islamic South Asia. In fact, Vladimir Zirinovsky, the Russian nationalist, was saying that that's the plan. We're going to do this together and all of this stuff. And And, and the Americans were saying that, too. So there was reason for me to think that that's what the new world order meant was that we were going to essentially bring Russia into NATO and then we would have the one world white army of the North that would rule against Islamic South Asia and China and whoever, you know, was next, Uh, you know, and that turned out not to happen. And I should have known once Bill Clinton bombed Serbia to break off Kosovo over Yeltsin's dead body and there was nothing he could do about it. That and he had to go around the United Nations and just use NATO to do it because the Russians would have vetoed it on the UN Security Council. I should have known then that well, so much for world order. You know what I mean? You had to do Kosovo, but you just cost yourself Russia. So, but it took me too long to get that through my thick skull. But once the terror war started, and I started reading Justin Romando at Antiwar.com, then I knew that this guy knows a lot of things that I don't know. And he knows all about this sect, these weirdos, these neo-conservatives, and that that's not Carol Quigley's old Anglo-American establishment. It's something else. Frankly, it's the Israeli-American establishment is what it is. And these were the guys who lied us into war in Iraq, was the vanguard of the Israel lobby in America. And it was just an entire different story. It didn't have a damn thing to do with building up the United Nations to be a world government. It just wasn't about that. And, and once I finally figured that out, um, you know, that really helped because, I, you know, I had I really learned a lot of history from being when I was a kook because the kooks, a lot of times, especially like some of the more advanced kooks, if you read their bibliographies, they got some really good books you ought to read, man. Going back, the real history of the 20th century is something else. You know, it really is. It's not necessarily whatever QAnon says it is or whatever, but there's a lot there. There's a lot of revisionism that really tells a different story than the way we learn it in school. You know, so I, I learned a lot from that and that was really what got me so into this. But then I quit being a kook right at the time that the most important chapter in all of this took place, which was the dawn of the war on terrorism. So then I wasn't you know following the loons off on a diverted path. Oh, Rumsfeld shot a missile at the Pentagon while he was sitting in it, and all this stupid crap. And instead, I was, you know, uh, reading people who knew what the hell they were talking about about who the neocons were and how they were trying to pin 9/11 on Iraq and go to Iraq for Israel's sake. And then the rest is history from there, right? Because from Iraq, the war spreads into then Libya. And then Syria and all throughout North Africa and down into Yemen and all the rest. And it all, you know, essentially spawns from the terror war there. So, um, my only pardon regret my,
0: pardon my ignorance, but what what benefit was it to Israel that we were in
1: Iraq? Ha! Yeah, exactly. I mean, these guys, that's the whole thing. I mean, there is absolutely as idiotic as they are nefarious here. I mean, if you go back and I write it all about this in enough already, but all you got to do is uh, pull up a clean break, a new strategy for securing the realm. And this is the thinking of David Wormser and Richard Pearl, some of the most influential neocons in Dick Cheney's orbit. And, you know, who really came up, this is the the backbone of the thinking behind the plan. And it goes like this, and this sounds really crazy and stupid because it is. What we're going to do is we get rid of Saddam Hussein. They really wanted to do a coup. They weren't proposing invasion then. They wanted to do a coup, and the idea was we'll get rid of Saddam, and then Jordan will be dominant in Iraq, because Jordan Peterson. Ha! Yeah, exactly. He's very persuasive <laughs> to some people, apparently. Um, I like. But that. Uh, no, the King of Jordan, King Hussein, will be dominant. And the reason they know that is because the Iraqi exile, Ahmed Chalabi, had blown all this smoke up their rear ends about how the Iraqi Shiite supermajority will bend right over and obey whatever King Hussein of Jordan tells them. He'll be able to make himself or his cousin the king of Iraq with the snap of his fingers, essentially, because the Hashemites, that's the royal family of Jordan, they claim to have the blood of the prophet Muhammad. And everybody knows that the Shiites will do whatever they're told by anyone who claims to have the blood of the prophet Muhammad. And then what we'll do is, our Iraqi exile friend Ahmed Chalabi tells us, he promises us this will work, we'll have our new Hashemite king of Iraq tell the Iraqi Shiite clergy in the city of Najaf in the south to pull their Shiite rank and demand that Hezbollah in southern Lebanon stop being friends with Iran. Okay, but this is completely stupid and wrong and inane because in fact- the, the, the the Shiites do revere the family of the prophet Muhammad, but not anybody who claims to be descended from him. Just this particular line, I think, starting with his son-in-law, I need to go back and reread all this, but the original Sunni Shiite split is some of them wanted to follow the family of Muhammad. And some of them wanted to just pick their own imams basically, right? It's almost like Catholics versus Protestants in a way. So, um, uh, in to oversimplify it vastly. But anyway, guess what? The Hashemites are not among those revered by the Shiites at all. They're Sunnis, and they got nothing to do with that tradition whatsoever. And back when the British had foisted a Hashemite kingdom on Iraq back in the 1920s, the Shiites had a fatwa that forbid anyone from cooperating with the king in any way. This whole thing was completely inane. And the idea was that this is going to help Israel because we'll make the Shiites in Iraq pull rank and they will influence Hezbollah and make Hezbollah start being nice to Israel and stop being friends with Iran. And then, of course, that's not what happened at all. Once they did the war and invaded and put the Shiite supermajority in power, of course, they're allied with Iran and backed by Iran, which is part of the reason that after Bush won the war for them with the cost of about a million people killed in that civil war, but he won the war for that Shiite supermajority. And then they said, great, now beat it. Don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. And they didn't, you know, they didn't even really say thank you. They just said, get lost um, after we put those factions in power because one, they're the supermajority and two, they're best friends with the country next door. So they didn't need American support anymore. and. Um, you know, that's the story of Iraq War II right there. and it and it comes from Jesus these Christ. neocons being absolutely as ignorant and ridiculous as they are arrogant and and um and determined, you know, as as fanatical as any group in American history to get their policy rammed through after the crisis of September eleventh, that no matter what, we are going to Iraq. you know? In fact, I think a big part of the reason, that September 11th happened, it was not because Bush was deliberately looking away and letting it happen. It was because every time anyone brought up Bin Laden, the neocons would say, no, 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 no. Forget Bin Laden in Afghanistan. It's all about Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Saddam's behind Al Qaeda anyway. It's all about Saddam. What's Al Qaeda gonna do? Set off a truck bomb somewhere or something? We don't have to worry about that. All eyes on Baghdad. If you listen to those losers over at CIA and try to and go after Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, man, we're never going to get to Baghdad. We're going to be stuck in Afghanistan. That's going to suck. And I think that's why September 11th happened was because of this constant kind of propaganda campaign by the neocons inside the government that don't listen to the professional government, not to give them too much credit. But the CIA was concerned about Al Qaeda. You know, they're the kind of they're the people who stay when political appointees come and go, and they're saying Al Qaeda's a problem. And the neocons are saying, "Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. They're trying to distract you. Eye on the prize. Eye on the prize." Then once September 11th happens, they go, "Oh yeah, well that's why we have to do Iraq. Is because of this attack by Al Qaeda," and just imply and do everything they can to make people believe that somehow Saddam Hussein was behind Osama bin Laden and the September 11th attack,
0: which really worked on the- On the the fake um, uh, chemical weapons too. Weapons of mass destruction.
1: Yep, fake WMDs and ties to Al Qaeda. And on the eve of the war, 70% of Americans believed that Iraq had done 9-11. And which is hilarious because if you think about it, that's a year and a half after 9-11. So any idiot, even if you just like lock him in a room alone, without any information or a newspaper or a pencil or anything, ought to just simply be able to think, well, wait a minute. If Saddam did 9-11, why didn't we start carpet bombing Iraq a year and a half ago when we started carpet bombing Afghanistan? Why are we waiting a year and a half? Why are we begging the French and the Russians and the Chinese to vote permission on the UN Security Council to start the war? You, remember you only need a UN bullshit. Security Council to the Start a war, not to remember Freedom Fries, you know, yeah.
0: Freedom Fries, man, remember that with the French?
1: uh, Oh yeah, oh Freedom Fries, yeah. You know, there's a cool story actually with that. Was the guy who did that, Walter Jones, was a congressman from North Carolina, and he ended up becoming a great Ron Paul type figure. He was a Catholic, and what happened was he would write letters home to the uh, parents of the dead guys. Oh, and he was. I forget now, maybe it was South Carolina. I forgot what it was. I think it might've been South Carolina, but he had a bunch of military bases in his district, like seven or something, like some crazy amount or, or really important ones or whatever it was. So he had guys dying all the time and getting blown up to death, right? Closed casket. And he's got to write letters home. You know, he's determined to write letters home to every mom and dad who this happens to their son over there and at one point he told the story at one point he just got down on his knees and begged for forgiveness and then that was it and he became a ron paul guy after that wow he was like so what have i done that i took speaking part of the in cia that,
0: you know have you yeah. um have you had a chance to watch the oliver stone documentary on jfk that just came
1: out yeah i did watch that what do you think of that what do you think
0: you know i'm not as well versed in this stuff as you are i've just well really taken an interest i'm in the really torn about it too. i mean I'll try like to go Oliver quick Stone quite a bit.
1: I mean, I never became a JFK conspiracy guy when I was a kid, because I just assumed that the CIA and the military did it because they didn't like his ass. And that was good enough. And I knew also that there's a stack of books this high. I got to read. And then I'm still not going to know because they go, there's just too much all over the place. So I didn't ever really want to solve that one that badly because I didn't really care. Cause he was a bad guy anyway. And Kennedy, um, it was his own. I mean, he had just done a coup against DM three weeks before, you know? Um, so, and I just figured I can't solve it, but I've already solved it. Alan Dulles did it or his friends did it or, you know, because I saw JFK, the movie, the first time when I was 14 or 15 back then. So I just figured, yeah, whatever, you know, it was good enough for me, but nothing else that I know or think or believe hinges upon that. You know, a lot of sure. people think like, sure. oh, everything changed after that assassination. Like, eh, I'm not so sure about that. Like, I, I can see how Johnson was worse. But this is a very gray scale to me. You know, not black and white in that way. People talk about the Prince of Camelot and all this crap. I'm not impressed by that. People talk that way about Barack Obama. But I wasn't impressed by that either. You know what I mean? Um, I don't. I don't buy into that kind of deal. But... When it comes to actually who shot the bastard and from which directions, I just don't know. And I got to tell you, it's so funny, man. I just watched this thing last year. I'm sure it's still on Amazon Prime. It's called The Smoking Gun or something like that, I think. And it's about a guy back in the 1970s who did a study for a men's magazine that you never heard of but it's like the small bro man type character you know hunter and sportsman and forensic expert and former lawman and whatever he was can tie any, and, mo- any knot <laughs> i'm
0: sorry i just said can tie any knot
1: oh <laughs> uh, yeah exactly right exactly that kind of guy with a, a plaid flannel shirt right six foot three cowboy hat um so He does all the recreations, whatever. And to spare you the long story short here, his conclusion was that the first shot went wild. Oswald's first shot hit the street. Or whoever was shooting from up there. He didn't get into characters. He wasn't looking at Cubans and whatever. He was doing a forensic examination. So whoever was behind him up there apparently took a shot that hit the street. Then he, he said the second shot was the shot that went through the president's back of the neck, went out of his throat, and you see him go, ah, in the Zapruder film. And this is the so-called magic bullet. But this guy's contribution to the magic bullet is he says there's nothing magic about it at all. All that happened was the first shot had rung out and gone wild. So Governor Connolly had turned to see what was going on. And at that moment was when the bullet came out of the president's neck, and that explains how it hit his shoulder, his hand, and his leg in a straight line. It's not a magic bullet at all. It's just that was how he was lined up when he turned in his seat. Okay, I don't know. But all right. So that's shot two. Then he says the shot three that killed the president did not come from up there. And you can tell it from makes no sense that it did because he says this is the exit wound here. Blasting out this way and the trajectory type thing don't match. So he takes the notes, now this is based off of the notes of the autopsy, and he notices, he says, well, that's funny. It says here that the entrance wound is 6.5 millimeters, but the full metal jacket bullet, that's the so-called magic bullet, well, it's only six millimeters. Uh, wait, wait. I screwed that up the other way. The hole in his head is six. The full metal jacket bullet was six and a half millimeters. So in other words, it's too big for the entry wound. So he goes, well, what the hell is that? That's weird, right? I don't know. Huh? So he takes, you know how they do with the sticks and the string and whatever. And he lines up the trajectory and he takes the string and he walks it back and he walks it back and he walks it back and guess where it lands not up there in the 6th floor depository and not over there in the grassy knoll it goes to the back seat of the secret service follow car you think the secret service whacked him so this was this was what he put together the first shot rings wild hits the street second shot hits the president in the back of the throat or back of the neck exits the throat hits the governor etc at this point the secret service agent in the back seat of the follow car picks up his m16 from the floor of the car and then at that point the driver either hits the brake or the gas or something presumably he loses his balance and he fucking accidentally shoots the president in the back of the head and kills him <sighs> And there's a still shot. Now, in the Zapruder film, you can see the follow car. they wanted to cover all the shit up. That would explain yeah, why they wanted to Yeah, so you can everything see the follow up. car at first, but at the time that he's shot, you can't see the follow car anymore. It's just not in the Zapruder film. But there is a still picture where you can see the guy in the backseat of the follow car, and you can see an M16 in the air. And Jeez. then that bullet fits. And then, also, it's not a full metal jacket bullet. It's a hollow point, or I don't know exactly, fragmentation round... And that would explain the giant exit wound. And so then that would explain a whole cover up of the autopsy a, and a clamp down of everything without a coup, without the CIA and the Cubans and any of that stuff. But we got to hush this up. We're not going to hang our own guy out to drive for this accident kind of thing. And so they let the guy get away with it and let everybody, you know risk nuclear war with the Soviets over it and everything else instead of taking responsibility. But then here comes the new Oswald, the new Oliver Stone and Oliver Stone says, no, man, this so the shot exit one was actually the, the, back of the head. Yeah, first of all, this one hit him in the throat was an entrance wound and the exit wound wasn't back here. It was way lower indicating like he was shot from on top of the bridge or something. I don't know from the front, but like from higher to lower. Right. Um, then he's got, um, and I don't know about this part, man. It's possible that an entrance wound can cause a big, whatever. I don't know. It sure. sure looks to me from the Zapruder film, like this is an exit wound. And I know that he says back into the left and all that, but I don't know, maybe that's physics, the bullet a- exits and the head kicks back from the bullet exiting. I'm, I'm just making that up. I don't know. But, I don't see a big exit wound in the back in the Zapruder film, but maybe that wouldn't be obvious in the film. Well, it's there not was that a piece of a skull of a on the back of the car. <laughs> that yeah, Jackie that's Brad. right. Yeah, they, they say that. And then they also have, at one point in the new Oliver Stone thing, they divide up the screen in like eight or 12 or 16 different people. All of them going like this. You know, their hand is like this to show like a circular wound, you know, the size of a silver dollar or something and they all go like this this is the exit wound right here right and and then there and then he's got doctors and nurses and other doctors and the guy at the autopsy and all of these people saying this was an entrance wound this was the exit wound um and then and he's also got people i think quite credibly saying that the autopsy photos are fake And that they put his head in the back back together and covered it up and did, you know, a coroner's job on his head. And then they took pictures of it to replace the original pictures by the original photographer. They got all of his stuff is gone and they get all this other stuff instead that they took, not in Texas, but back in D.C. And this kind of thing. So. I don't know. I really had no idea. Well, I will say. Isn't that everything? Like, which direction was the guy shot from? And by the way, here's the other thing that Stone says, which I think is right, is that it wasn't Oswald, whoever pulled that trigger up there, uh, or if that's even where any of those shots came from, that sixth floor depository window. And because he demonstrates virtually conclusively that there's no way he ran down those stairs and could have been seen eating in the little break room cafeteria thing on the second or third floor, whatever it was, um, without being seen. uh, Because there were other people in the stairwell at the time coming and going and wanting to go and see what's going on and all these things. And he has all their testimony saying that, yeah, I looked and there was Lee Oswald was sitting there eating a sandwich and didn't have any idea what was going on. And no, he couldn't have run down the stairs because there's only one stairs and I was in them at the time. He would have had to pass me. get there and this kind of thing and that was one that i learned from my dad when i was a little kid was it always seemed funny that he his alibi was that yeah he was in the building but he was many floors below seen calmly eating a sandwich within a couple of minutes you know and having somehow discarded the rifle and whatever it was taking care of everything and then come down there. And then that was his great excuse. It wasn't to get out of the building and get the hell out of there and deny he was ever there, but it was to be seen eating a sandwich in the break room. And then when they parade him before the cameras, he goes, I didn't kill anybody. I'm the patsy. Like, now maybe that now, was a more common back then. Yeah, but he like he could, have said, he could have just said, look, I didn't do anything. They got the wrong guy. Right? He said he was a patsy, so yeah, he implied a I'm conspiracy. the patsy. Right? Sounds like he knows that he was told to be at that building at that time, and then he went, oh, I see what's going on here. You're framing me up for this thing. God dang it, Bobby, I should have known. Right? Like, it's just such a specific claim of innocence, isn't it? How many times have you ever heard anyone else say, I'm the patsy for whatever crime? being committed well, and, you know and let's
0: just let's just think of it from a psychological profile for a second let's just uh-huh. say you're a lone yeah. radical gunman and right. you're on a radical insane mission to assassinate the and president. you got him you, got you don't the lie bastard. about it you don't lie yeah. about it you, right. like those guys all say yeah i fucking shot him jack ruby didn't try to like say i didn't shoot you know anybody right. like anybody who would do that admits it they write about it before they write about it after yep. or they stand you know the like yep. you look at any mass shooter whatever they all own it they own it and, and the fact that he was saying he was a patsy so emphatically right off the bat is just indicative to me that he was just that
1: yep well you know i know a lady who her family, they were Republicans back then, which was, there's no such thing in Texas. There in 63? Single-party Democratic state. I'm sorry? In 63? Yeah. And, or even before. And, you know, the right, the Democrats were the right, you know, um, uh, in the South and in Texas. And, um, but they were the rare Republican family. And she told me that When the day that the minute that Jack Kennedy named Lyndon Johnson to be his vice presidential candidate, that they all just laughed and said, oh, he's a dead man. Lyndon is going to kill him dead and take his chair and like start your stopwatch. It's on. What a fool (laughs) of all the people to make your vice president. Like, I know you need Texas and all of that, but man what a mistake because he's going to kill you (laughs) You what was so menacing
0: about lbj before before um the kennedy presidency
1: Uh, i'm sorry what was the first part of that
0: sorry i was just asking what was so menacing about lbj before the yeah before the kennedy presidency i
1: mean he he was a very corrupt player man he was a very Mm. tough guy he was the kind of guy you know i think he won his big you know, his first race for the Senate, I don't know about going to the House, but I know he won his first race for the Senate by essentially every cemetery in Texas voting for him. And he was Jesus known Christ. as a hard drinking, late night whore and mean old son of a bitch, man. He was something else. You know, a well, you, so you can kind of
0: pick up on that. that. Just
1: just listen to his phone conversations. You can pick up on that. The personality yeah. sort of dude. I mean, they talk about him. This is a late night show, right? They talk about him, how should I say, uh, molesting young ladies right there in front of his wife, in front of everybody, just, just like doing Joe whatever Biden. he wanted. You know, like, yeah, he was a. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know who all he had murdered before Jack Kennedy, but I just know, like this family, they just immediately predicted that this is what's going to happen. So I don't know if he mm-hmm. was directly in on it or not. One thing I like about Oliver Stone's take on this. Is that it's the right wing cowboy establishment, the military industrial complex, not the bankers and the oil men from back east, but it's, you know, what he calls the beast. It's the new right. And um, that they're the ones who did the shooting here. And then. um, I I forget exactly how he does this in Nixon, I think. Well, anyway, have you ever seen the, the Oliver Stone movie, Nixon. It's really great. It's got um, uh, Hannibal sure. Lecter uh, plays Nixon. Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, Anthony Hopkins plays him. It's I so seen good. That one. I saw um, the
0: interview one. The Nixon Frost one is what I saw.
1: Oh, okay. Frost, yeah. Nixon. So in the in the Oliver Stone movie of Nixon, there's a scene where, and this is the true history that people will raise this to this day that Nixon was in Dallas the day before the assassination. So Oliver Stone has a treatment on this in the movie, and it's he's shown earlier in the movie that Nixon has to go and court these Texans. And I guess the implication is they're Lockheed from Fort Worth or something, you know, along those lines. And then here they summon him essentially. And he comes and the guy is played by J.r. Ewing of Dallas. you know, the the astronaut from My Dream of genie is the uh, what's his exactly. name? Major Nelson, know you know the, name, the guy.
0: But I know exactly who you're talking about.
1: But yeah, so when he's playing a mean old Texan, he can do that character very well, right? A very sure. power—he's playing Bloody a very powerful J.R. Ewing type character, right? And he's just reading the the law. He's just telling Nixon, "Here are your marching orders, and here's what you're going to do." And Nixon is like, oh, wow well, I'm the President of the United States. You can't talk to me quite like that, you know?" And he's like poking his finger in his chest you're the president of the United States because I say you are. And I can unpresident United States your ass anytime I want and all that kind of thing. Oh, that's later. No, no, that's later. The first time he meets, the first time he goes and meets him is the day before Kennedy's shot. And he goes and, and they have this long talk and whatever. And then he leaves town the next day Kennedy's shot. And then so Nixon is all paranoid as hell because he can see that essentially they've compromised him, that they brought him close enough. These are the guys who killed him. And that, but they brought him close enough that he can't say anything about it now because what the hell was he doing in Dallas the day before and this kind of thing. So now essentially he's been caught up in it. And then, and Oliver Stone is not the source for this. This goes back, I don't know to who originally claimed this, but essentially the idea was that whenever Nixon talked about the whole Bay of Pigs thing, that that meant the assassination of Jack Kennedy. That, you know, that was the whole Bay of Pigs thing Was, you know, from beginning to end here, this whole thing with the right wing Cubans working for the CIA and the mob and the way that that all blew back in their face and that these were the guys. And the general
0: the the general conspiracy is that the intelligence community was so pissed off that Kennedy didn't uh, allow for the use of uh, American troops in in Cuba during Bay of Pigs that they whacked him.
1: No, no, I think the idea is that that I think that was the big star. I mean, he fired Alan Dulles over that. And that was right. obviously the start of the huge acrimony between him and them, which it was really their fault. I mean, they completely screwed that up completely. And I, think, the idea I think they was, did it on
0: purpose. I think they wanted to push, they wanted to force Kennedy's hand and he just had integrity on on that particular issue. Well, I
1: think it was both. I think it was supposed to work well, but they still were going to force him to provide air support. But there, it was such a disaster. There was nothing to support. In fact, I got a great book here. I forgot, I'm trying to remember the guy, Howard. Um There's a couple of great books on the Bad Pigs, but uh, Howard, um, I interviewed the guy about it, too. It's just a great book. He just shows how the plan kept getting changed and changed and changed and changed. But the people who wrote the original plan weren't there to say, whoa, 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 you can't change it that much. Right. It just got like passed down this chain to where by the time they're doing it, there's just no way this is going to happen. And they moved the landing zone from here to there and every other thing, you know. Um, And they were you're right that they were trying to essentially they were counting on Jack Kennedy to order air support. And he was like, no, you're trying to roll me into this. I'm not going to do that. You know, Um, so I don't know that you could say that they killed him for that. But I guess the idea is that the motive was that he really, especially after the Cuban Missile Crisis, really wanted to end the Cold War and uh, that he meant to do so in his second term and that he was going to refuse to escalate any further in Vietnam. Now, I don't really know if that's true, but I, I will tell you that um, my friend Mike Swanson in his book, The War State, he doesn't get into who shot him at all. But I, he has done the best job of convincing me that, you know, when people say that Jack Kennedy, when he gave the American University speech, that he really meant that, that this was, you know, signaled a real change in his policy. And he was going to go to Moscow and make a deal and somehow end the Cold War and all this stuff and that that was what they would not tolerate. Now, I don't know if I really buy that. It could be more narrow than that, like not necessarily end the whole Cold War, but maybe he was just more reluctant to go to Vietnam and they were more determined to get rid of that military equipment, man, in the name of the Vietnam
0: War. Stone implies that um, JFK was determined to end the CIA. And he, he quotes him as saying, I will shatter the CIA into a thousand pieces.
1: And that's a famous quote. I'm not sure how true that really is or whether, I mean, I think in the movie, JFK, he portrays him as already ordering it and that he gave a memo to the Joint Chiefs saying that you will now take over intelligence from the CIA. And they I can't think of it. a damn good thing they've done. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's really true, man. You think about it, you know, if somebody had assassinated Barack Obama they would have come up with all this mythology about how great he was and all the great things he was about to do, if only they hadn't stopped him. And it must be why they did what they did is because of the greatness of all the things that he would have, could have, should have done if only he'd had the chance or whatever. So it's hard for me to buy into that too much. I know that there are people like, you know, Noam Chomsky who's much older and lived through all that time, who says, "That's, that's total BS. That JFK was nothing but Barack Obama, who was nothing but Hillary Clinton. There was nothing special about this guy. There was nothing peaceful about him. Now, you could say that maybe Chomsky is just such an ideologue. He couldn't see the shades of gray where they did exist. You know it's what I mean? probably both. Certainly, Jack Kennedy started out as Hillary Clinton, a center left, you know, very center left Democrat. Um, and, you He's know, explicitly anti
0: communist, though, which is something you don't yeah. see from the left very often today well
1: i mean nowadays communism doesn't exist anymore really as a thing so it's not much of a thing but that's and true the Democrats that's true. Are not, not in the same
0: sense too. but the marxism yeah. definitely exists
1: oh uh, yeah but i just mean there's no soviet empire to accuse people of being loyal to it and that kind of thing you know it's the funniest right. thing dude i saw i watched a uh, cannonball run and cannonball run Two, and there's this funny scene where uh have you ever seen those you're too no man me. um where are those it's Dean Martin and Cannonball run was a race across the country from, from New York to LA that they did in the late seventies with muscle cars and all this stuff. And then they made movies out of it with Burt Reynolds and Dom De Louise and um, Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. and all these guys. So in the movie, the, the uh, Burt Reynolds character is always playing pranks on, or, you know, getting the other guys in trouble. Dean Martin and um, Sammy Davis Jr. are a team and they're dressed up like priests. And so uh, and they're driving a red Ferrari. And then so uh, Burt Reynolds tells for the local sheriff's department in this small town, there's some communists coming through here and they're they're dressed like priests and they're driving a red Ferrari and they're wanted for raping girls or some terrible thing, some terrible commie thing. You guys do your patriotic duty and stop them for us, and then so they show Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. in the Ferrari, but they got a police radio scanner, so they can hear the cops talking about them. Everybody be on the lookout for two priests in a red Ferrari. They're communists, and we gotta stop them. And Dean Martin goes, "Communists? I'm not even a Democrat." <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's a great, they don't make them like that anymore.
1: And and lots of Countach in both movies, which makes them both worth all, you know, five hours, whatever, three hours.
0: So, so it seems apparent to me that the military industrial complex coupled with the intelligence community, which are basically the same thing in a lot of ways, are the source of most of our problems uh, in the United States today.
1: What the fuck are we supposed to do about it? Yeah. Good question. I mean, look, um, ultimately as Ron Paul said, even in the Soviet union, the people get the government that they demand. And if people won't go along with it anymore, then it won't be gone along with. And you can see where people's opinion does have an effect. You know, for example, when Obama wanted to bomb Syria over the fake chemical uh, attack in 2013 the american people were just against it I and mean, the entire american right was against it led by breitbart and then therefore talk radio and everything they were just completely against it and you know there are liberals who are willing to go along if it's obama's war but they didn't really want to do it you know they their heart wasn't really in it they'd still got a little bit of that legacy of the vietnam era new left in them that doesn't really like to fight you know i know we already um, been in a
0: war for 15 years and
1: We'd already been at war, you know, yeah, at that point for 10, 10 years. years. And and um, and um, Obama backed down. I mean, Obama said, look, we're going to continue to do CIA covert action in there, but we're not going to go to war. Uh, we're not even going to do what we did in Libya, in Syria. We're just, you know, and he was afraid that he would end up really with al-Qaeda ruling Damascus um, in a way that in Libya, the al-Qaeda guys were part of the war, but they didn't end up really just... Or even the guys who did take over weren't quite as bin Ladenite as they had been previously. So it wasn't nearly as bad as what happened in Syria. But you look at the rise of the caliphate with Baghdadi and all that. He was really afraid that would happen in Damascus, that they'd lose the whole country. So um,
0: what I you know, they to understand say, is what purpose the, the CIA and the FBI serve. Because well, they serve you know, themselves. The they serve the, themselves. I mean, I mean, that's it. Right, right. But they like, don't need them. They, the, they passed the Patriot Act, which is like a total violation of all U.S. citizen rights, and they still didn't fucking prevent the Boston bombing.
1: No, of it's like not. I mean, they, well, they were busy. Boston FBI was busy entrapping some idiot into a fake plot while all that was unfolding right under their nose. You know. What do you think of, speaking of fake
0: plots? What do you, you think mean. about January sixth in hindsight?
1: Um well, you know, I've interviewed Darren Beatty about it a couple of times. Mm, me too. One and I time. think that um I think he makes a pretty good case. Uh, there's there's severe reason to believe that there were a lot of informants inside the thing. Now, if the I tend to try to go with the Occam's razor simplest thing first. The simplest right. thing first is not that the FBI told them to do that as much as just FBI informants did a thing and now they got to cover that up because whenever the FBI compromises a guy, they also are compromised by that guy, right? Um, In fact, this is one of the theories about JFK is that the mob killed him for business reasons, but they did so knowing that they were so close to the CIA and the plots to kill Castro at the time that the CIA and FBI would have to cover it up for them and let them get away with it rather than reveal all that they had been doing together you know, because they were right. had compromised the feds right back who had compromised them. So, um, you know, that's like the simplest explanation. I mean, I have to tell you, I am not of the belief that the CIA and the FBI gotta be behind every dang thing that happens. Sure. Um, and I think that when you see the guys in the, who who is Ray Epps, when you see those videos and you read those articles, and you look at these guys, I don't think there's any question that they were working together, that they had very specific goals. Your job is to do this and your job is to do this. And at this time and all these things, it's speculation. You can't see it happen, but it's to me, virtually certain that these six or seven men knew each other and knew exactly what they were doing when they were doing it and all of that. That doesn't imply government involvement at all, necessarily. If you can't get a... Room with six right wingers to plan to do a thing. I mean, you can. That's it's crazy to think that you can't do that without it being a government op. You know, it could very well be the case that you had, you know, one or more of them telling their FBI agent handlers what's really going on here, and that they knew or should or could have known. I think it's already clear they would have, could have, should have known that they would need way more men than they had there to secure the place. And there's an article in Vanity Fair about a guy who was embedded with the secretary of defense that he wrote it, um, who said that Donald Trump himself said, you're going to need 10,000 men. And I hereby authorize it right now that you can bring out the National Guard and you have 10,000 men. And they were reluctant to bring them out because they thought it would look like those men were sent there by Trump to overthrow the Congress and that it would be bad optics like that, like it was part of some coup when really they would just be there to keep the peace and prevent anything crazy from happening. But so that reluctance led to then craziness. So, you know, but as far as like whether the whole thing was a setup and the FBI wanted to like, let's get these guys to do the craziest thing they can and see if we can get them to attack the building, break into the building, try to hunt down congressmen inside it and that kind of deal. Ah, probably not. You know, is it possible yeah, that the yeah, FBI would go that far and try to make their enemies look that bad? Yes. But. But. What if we look at Unlike, it? Though, what if we
0: look at it in the context of the entire Trump presidency, uh, from from the Russia collusion standpoint? If we look at the sure. the lies about the FISA warrant in order to spy on the campaign, and then the lies Every about Russian Russi- collusion, now you
1: can just sum that up right there. Every bit of Russiagate Gate was a lie, one hundred percent of it, all of it.
0: And so it seems to me that the community was out to get Trump from the from the get go of his presidency, for whatever reason. I don't know. Um, that being said. You know, it, I think it's in the, the um, Art of War, Sun Tzu, you know, crush your enemy entirely. And it could, it, it stands to reason that, you know, you, they couldn't literally assassinate Trump because that would have been mayhem, but they basically did everything that they could do up to the point of assassinating him in terms of just like attacking from every front, shattering his reputation well, as much as possible. And, and so that would be. My explanation for why the FBI would have had incentive or motive to catalyze what happened on January 6th is is that it was such a blow to his reputation and the reputation of his supporters that that happened that it was basically an assassination without, you know, with only one, with only Ashley Babbitt dying.
1: Maybe. I mean, that really is kind of like a hindsight rationalization sort of a deal, though. I mean, in fact, sure. he was already discredited, and they must have known I mean, they absolutely must have been tapping all these phones and had to have known if, you know, not the criminal division, but the counterintelligence division that Mike Pence was not going to break the law and try to send the electors back to their states to get new instructions and all this. There's no provision in the Constitution for that whatsoever. And Mike Pence is not that close of a team player with Trump. He's a Republican Party guy. And they even asked him, he said he called Dan Quayle who was also from Indiana. And so what do you think, Dan? And Dan Quayle said, dude, what are you gonna do? You count the votes. There's nothing in there that says you have the authority to decide which votes to count. There's nothing in there that says you have the right to send votes back to the states because you don't like them. The electoral college voted. You're there to perform a ceremony, that's it. The election's over, and which is true. So, um." But, you know, I mean, it is true, too, that Trump and his people, the closest loyalists to him, they were doing everything they could up until like halfway through that day to try. That's why Trump said everybody marched to the Capitol. I don't think he wanted them to go inside his idea of fight, fight, fight means stand outside and chant. That's the American way. You know, I'm sure that's what he meant when he said that. But the idea was to pressure Pence into going along with this ridiculous plan to try to keep him in power, which is just insane. And the fact that the Electoral College had already voted. You know, when Jack Kennedy stole the election from Richard Nixon in 1960, Nixon wanted to cry about it and fight about it. And Ike Eisenhower told him, no, you're not gonna do that. It'd be bad for the country to do that. He stole it from you fair and square, Dick. Cry, go home and and cry. That's it. And in this case, I don't know if they stole it from him or not. I kind of think not all the Republican narratives about how stolen it was to me seem preposterous and and very thin to say the least. I mean, the way they really rigged it was by all the Democratic governors locking the economy down for a year. You know, that was how they rigged it. Um, That was the color coded revolution in it all right was um, and, and unleashing the street protests and then refusing to contain them at all when they turn into riots and that kind of thing. I mean, that's the that's the part where they really undermine him. I don't think so much the ballot stuffing. But um, it is true, though, that that Trump was insisting that his people figure out a way to do this. In fact, I don't know if you saw this, but he just put out a thing recently saying that Trump, that, you know, slamming Pence, Pence denies that he had the authority to overturn the election. Yes, he did. It actually ends with the phrase he could have overturned the election exclamation point, you know, and damn him for not overturning the election. That's the words of Donald Trump's press release from t- yesterday, I think, or two days ago. Um, and the thing is about it, like, man, You know, ain't nobody hates Hillary Clinton more than me. I got the trophy. I beat all y'all at that years ago. I mean, that's, again, you know, like all of this, none of this is partisan whatsoever. Um, You know, I've never been a Trump guy, but I sure did enjoy watching him defeat everybody he defeated to get that job. Um, If I had to choose, I would rather side with him than them bastards. But I think it's just true that he's just a narcissist, that he has got a mental handicap, in that he can just never say, okay, he just can't. He just can't bring himself to say it. And you know- you almost have to have have a problem in order to have the audacity to run. Right, absolutely right. And, And frankly, like I think he's probably the only man in America who is rich enough and famous enough and brash enough to win the presidency without being a governor, a senator, a vice president right, part of the completely club and totally vetted by the establishment a hundred percent of the way there i don't think there's any other person who could do it mark cuban couldn't do it uh elon musk t- couldn't do it musk is um, even a natural born yeah. citizen uh yeah well there you go but i mean even if he was he might be rich but he ain't tall and he ain't famous not like trump i mean trump is essentially what they call like a mega star right when you're when you're Michael Jackson famous and you out even, you know, Elizabeth Taylor doesn't compare to you because you're that God dang famous. I mean, that's how famous he is. He's like been a a, a feature in rap music for 30 years. Sure. He's famous he's for different reasons every decade. Yeah. He's a brand. His name is Trump for God's sake. Like the winning card in the deck, you know, the guys. um, And, and, and here's how I knew he was going to win was as soon as I read that The Apprentice was on for 14 seasons. I was like, oh, well, there you go. He's gonna win, that's it. That's absolutely unstoppable. Which I had already said that even Jeb would beat Hillary. Hillary couldn't beat anybody. But there was just no question that Trump was gonna win the primary and win the election. 14 seasons, are you kidding me? You can't beat that. Nobody could beat that, you know?
0: How many seasons was the Cosby
1: show? (laughs) Uh, Probably pretty close. (laughs) You know, and frankly, I bet Bill Cosby could have been a senator if he wanted to have been.
0: You know, yeah, before the scandal, for sure, for sure. Do you think Hillary's going to run in twenty four? Nah, nah, she's watching. That's just bullshit clickbait.
1: Yeah, she's too old. Who's it going to be? Well, I mean, that's what's hilarious, right? Is the Democratic Party knows that they're stuck with Kamala Harris and there's nothing they can do. It's either going to be Biden or Harris. And I think Biden, man, is he pushing his luck? He might run. He might run. But he also, I think that there's, you got to give. I give it like a 60, 40 shot that his wife is going to talk him out of it and tell him, Joe, you did great. You stopped Trump. You saved the country. But now it's time to go back and pass the baton. In fact, he could quit a little bit early. And let Kamala Harris get a running start like Yeltsin did for Putin back in 2000. You know, let her sit in the chair a few months before the election. But the Democrats are stuck with her because she's a black woman. And for them to overthrow her in favor of anyone else of a different identity would just, it wouldn't work. But like her she's popularity got that is always intersectionality, You know, huh? But she's terrible in the polls. Always. I know. She has been. Well, but that's the thing. So, but what are they going to do? They just can't throw her overboard. They just can't. The Democratic Party leadership, think about the position that they're in right now. They're going to throw her overboard and then nominate who? Like a white man from some governor from somewhere or something. I don't even know who they would nominate. You know, Gavin yeah. Newsom is handsome, but everyone hates his freaking guts. He almost got recalled. He's the most totalitarian, second, third most totalitarian governor in America. And it was yes, just he's too young. Yep. they can't run. Um, her. She's too young. So um, they're screwed, man. The The Democratic Party has an extremely weak hand, even if it's Biden running and he's the incumbent. He's either going to be in the midst of a in- massive inflationary bubble or a massive depression from the popping of one. Uh, either way, he's going to be completely screwed on the economy. Uh, Do you think Trump's going to on the right? older than he is right now, you know? Um, yeah. so, I um, think it's going to be Trump and, on and the right. I think it's going to be Trump because I don't think anybody could beat him on the right. Well, I'll tell you this. I think he's made a mistake trashing DeSantis. He should have said, DeSantis, you know, you're my boy, but you got to wait four more years. Instead, he's been trashing DeSantis in a way where DeSantis is going to feel like, well, what am I going to do? I might as well run against him now. Why wait? Um, but i think they'll be fighting over the same voters and trump will be telling all his people that this guy is a rat bastard traitor probably works for the chinese communists or god knows what he's going to do to smear desantis he's going to attack him mercilessly so and i think that'll stick it'll work i mean trump succeeds in that when he when he you know little marco is stuck to this day you know um right but so
0: not exactly a poker face
1: yeah, and, and I don't think anybody else could stand between Trump and the nomination. I tell you what, I've got a then- lot of
0: problems with Trump. i got the same problems with Trump that you mentioned earlier. But the, the amount of joy to my own fault that I felt and feel at how triggered he makes everyone I really hate Right, makes it very difficult for me not to vote for him. I voted for him both, both cycles last time, and I don't know if I'm going to vote for him in the primary or not. It depends on who runs against him but it would be very difficult for me not to vote for him.
1: Yeah, I could never vote for him. But I'll tell you what, I mean, I do think that in in a very important sense that he's a hero for stopping Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton in one year. You know, it was kind of unfortunate that he was the one who had to fill the place instead of them because he was really a horrible president. Um, As you said, you know, he had a full court press against him from his own government the whole time. Um that's an excuse. Decisions though. That he made a lot of really, really horrible decisions. But I never would have thought um, that
0: a Republican president would have written everybody a check.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, and I he mean, he was a liberal burn. democrat his whole life. Burn. Yeah, yeah he's know. he's not really a conservative. He doesn't even know what that means. He never called himself populist. Suffering. Yeah, he's right. Yeah, and even then he's just acting as one, right? He's not a populist, he's a fucking billionaire. You know, he's a TV star. Um, He's, uh, you
0: know. I do think that, maybe I'm being naive, I do think he loves the country, though.
1: Yeah, sure, in a kind of, yeah, but in a way that, like, anybody can. It's very easy to do, but it's, you know, I'll tell you what, man, I read this thing. I admit it was at Salon.com. I don't know what the hell I was doing there, but I was reading something, and it was in the right-hand margin. And it was, this is after the election and after January 6th and everything like that. But in the margin, it said, what Trump is liable to do if he loses. Now, I thought in the summer that just, oh, he's going to win. And I was more worried about what the Democrats were going to do. And they had run all these articles about how they were even willing to, um, they were going to fight just like Trump. I mean, they were willing to uh, try to fight over state electors. They were even threatening that they would have the West Coast states secede from the union. Rather than let their um, uh, rather than participate in the United States, if Trump were to be reelected, that would be their ultimate threat would be all this was in the Washington Post um, of the lengths that the Democrats would go to, you know. So I was pretty much ignoring all the articles about this is what Trump will do if he loses, because I was like, he ain't going to lose. So it's kind of that's stupid anyway.
0: Right.
1: But so I clicked on this article and it wasn't by a Democrat. Talking about, oh, he's going to try to rig the Electoral College vote in Michigan or whatever. It wasn't like that. It was a psychiatrist. And she was just talking about him personally. So she wasn't getting into, like, what he would do with the mechanics of things um in a political way. There was she a psychological was saying, response, man. Yeah, like, this guy is a page straight out of my textbook, okay? He is a narcissist. He, that's what he is he's got narcissism syndrome B or whatever to the nth freaking degree. And what that essentially means is that he doesn't love himself. He doesn't think to himself that like, yeah, basically you're all right, man. You know, the way most of us do. Um, and that's probably because he was raised by his father to hate himself and never feel like he was good enough and that kind of thing, whatever it was. But so when someone is really like that, And uh, they compensate for that lack of self-regard by always just having to be the best at everything to always, always have to win. And then if they don't win, it's universal. They just accuse the other side of cheating. They refuse to admit that they did not win. If it's a foot race or if it's an electoral race or, you know, if it comes down to a business deal and the other guy screwed them, They'll say, well, uh, I'm the one who got him in the deal the other way. And there's always deny, 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 never, never apologize, never back down, never admit that, okay, well, this time you're wrong or I was wrong, I guess, or whatever. And it's just, so what will he do if he really loses? What will he do? He'll throw a temper tantrum and he'll say it was rigged. He'll say that they cheated and he'll demand that all the people who like him believe him and agree with him. And do everything they can to fight for him. And like there's all different reporting about from inside his administration after the election, but before the inauguration, where, you know, he's talking with his lawyers, Giuliani and all his men and whatever. And the line is, are you willing to fight for this president? Are you still willing to fight for him or not? And he's that's what he's demanding of his team. He's not saying, guys, do we agree that we have a constitutional path forward here or something like that? at all. It's just, are you willing to fight until the end to do no matter what you can do? Let's come up with this harebrained scheme where we try to get Pence to refuse to count the votes and just whatever we can do. And then, and yes, he was able to get to sign up some people to on his team to go along with that. And he was able to sign up tens of millions of Americans to believe him that just like with George W. Bush, He wouldn't lie to me about this. I have to believe him, right? This is my president. He tells me Saddam Hussein is a threat to this country, that I have to let him defend me. Well, I'm going to do that. If Donald Trump, the sitting president of the United States, says all hands on deck, everyone come to the Capitol on January 6th to protect the Constitution and the rule of law from the evil commie Chinese Democrats overthrowing us and whatever all this, um, You know, Maduro and Hugo Chavez rigged the voting machines, and all this—that's just essentially his personal narcissism playing out because he just any other person would just say, "Okay, fine, you beat you stole it fair and square. I'll have to try again next time." But at some point, I think about if you're in a race and the guy does cheat, and you know he cheated, but the referee refuses to admit it. Are you just gonna sit there and stomp your feet and cry on the track all afternoon in front of everybody's dad, or you're just gonna suck it up, man? Because sometimes you get screwed, bro. That's it, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. One, frankly, if I if I lost a presidential election and I knew that the my opponent cheated, I wouldn't say anything.
1: you might say something, but you're not gonna fight beyond the electoral college, you
0: know. But but the but the belief in the system, even if the system. Is not worthy of faith is so crucial to peace.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, the truth is the truth, you know. But I agree. I wouldn't lie. But yeah,
0: I, you know, I, I I empathize with the with the Machiavellian approach. Like, hey, right. you know, take one for the team. <laughs> well, yeah, it's I mean, tempting. that was the Nixon the thing. Round.
1: Eisenhower told Nixon, "You're just going to have to suck this one up, kid." Right? I don't know what that's to a, tell you, buddy. It's a
0: tempting approach. Yeah.
1: And, and it, everybody it knew right. that they stole it. Everybody knew that all the dead in Texas and Illinois voted for Jack Kennedy.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's right? even in the Mad it. Men series. Did you ever see the Mad Men series? No, I know what uh, you're talking about. Yeah, but in Mad Men, uh, one of the main characters says, and Kennedy would or uh, Nixon would have won too if it wasn't for every corpse in Cook County." That's like a right. line that was written in that yep. show that takes place, course of course, that election year. Right. And yeah, so yep. it's obvious that the
1: culture knew. But yep, everybody did. Um, but but, but f- once he got away with it, it was like, dude, what are you going to do? You're going to tear this country apart. You're going to pit uh, regular American citizens against each other over this partisan fight to that degree. And of course, at that time, while the commies are watching, we're going to go through this where there's a question about who has command authority over our military. No, we're not going to do that. And it's just, right. frankly, it's the most irresponsible thing in the world. To we just need an airtight,
0: we need an blockchain-based election solution or something. The technology's yeah. there to
1: make it foolproof. You know, I don't know why we need to have this government at all. Yes, you know, I think that's we reasonable. could. You know, yeah, it is. You know, frankly, I'm like a Lockean I'm a Lockean man. Do without it, I'm a Lockean
0: man. I, I think that you have to have a third party to protect your rights from other people
1: maybe, but even then you could just, how about we have the 50 States with extremely limited powers, but without a national government, why do we need a national government? We can have a unified foreign policy. I would rather not have a foreign policy. (laughs) You know, I don't want 50 separate foreign policies, but why can't we just trade and not have a security state? I mean, we're not threatened by anyone anywhere. We got Canada and Mexico as our neighbors. Yeah, yeah, Uh, it's obvious that the
0: the greatest threat to national security is the CIA and the FBI and our (laughs) own government. I'm way more afraid of of our own government than, I have more, I wake up in the middle of the night or when I look at my one-year-old daughter, I, I, I have like flashes of fear that one day I'll be in prison and I have no intention of committing a crime. And I never ever fear for a moment that I'm gonna be the victim of a terrorist attack. But I do right. have flashes of fear, like, oh shit, what if I get locked up? For, yeah, what if you get framed up for fucking reason? You know, yeah, yeah. What if some I have no intention of committing in a crime? I swear. Yeah, it's right. Just like, what if they throw me yeah. in the pen because I'm a fucking political dissident? Like I'm pretty vocal on, on on Twitter, and that's fine
1: now. But what if it's not fine twenty years from now? <laughs> right. You know. Um. Yeah. No, you're totally right. And even not even for being a dissident, but might be just because you got brown hair and you're walking down the street. And they go, well, he looks like the guy that we were told to look for and nail you to the wall. They do it every day. You know, it's something um, that I didn't think about that. They're like, people really have to worry that their security force will wrongfully pin something on them. You ever notice, you ever see like on court TV, how different a criminal trial is on that kind of still surveillance type camera compared to when they show you a TV drama or a movie you know yeah. it goes yeah. from like man the the wood paneling and the close-up zoom shots and all that from the scenes in the movies compared to just watching this group of bureaucrats in a room watching Kyle Rittenhouse sit there in a suit sad for fucking yeah and eight it's like, weeks or whatever it, in fact that one was that one was actually like a bad example, I think, because that made it seem more it was, like an it was episode better. of Matlock or something, where in the right. in a real trial, it's like they're just flipping burgers in there. This guy says something, this guy says something, we all know he's guilty, he's guilty, off you go. And the guy doesn't even really get a chance to say it his way. And I thought Radley Balco wrote a great piece for the Washington Post where he said the, the Rittenhouse trial... And the Ahmed Aubrey trial, even though the results of both were correct, but he said the trials themselves were bad for America because Because they made it seem like the justice system was intact. That's right; they make it look like this is what happens when someone is prosecuted for murder, but it's just not. That's not how it works at all. It's crazy. What's crazy
0: about that is that it proves that the government knows how to do it right. Right. They just
1: don't. Unless, unless everyone's court's watching are clogged with people the court's completely clogged with people guilty of offenses and so they have no time to prosecute crimes so instead the way that they prosecute crimes is they go look we're going to charge you with 75 things unless plead. you plead guilty to five of them and then it it's should, like how it am i going to go in front of a jury it should be, be illegal
0: crap. to plead guilty to a crime you didn't commit
1: that should not yeah. even be legal yep then they just bury you under the prison for that I mean, you think about you want to how about like accountability for prosecutors who knowingly prosecute people who didn't do it or at least, you know, bonuses
0: for public defenders who win to actually give them an incentive to fucking win.
1: If
0: you win, you you get five grand. If
1: if there was accountability for prosecutors who prosecuted innocent people, then they would just destroy the process. They would destroy the process for proving your innocence after trial. They would just do anything they could to undermine the ability to even have something to hold them responsible for then. They would find a I way. swear to God, if I was on a
0: jury, I, I am like the number one juror that you want, dude. Because unless, unless the victim is like a, a child, even if I'm convinced that the person's guilty, I'm probably going to just insist on not guilty.
1: <laughs> well, I got to admit, I testified in a trial one time for the state. I was not ratting on a friend who I was guilty with or anything like that. I had walked in on an armed robbery at the Quickie Mart and the guy split the old man's head open. Man, it was the craziest thing. I still remember how orange the blood was. I was just all, you witnessed the
0: crime though. That's different.
1: Yeah. Brain. Yeah. So, I did not point my finger at the defendant because I didn't really know if that was him or not, man. I was looking at the club in his hand more than I was looking at his face, and I don't really know. I didn't identify him from the pictures that they showed me at the police station that day either. I was just like, he might be one of those, but I'm not gonna convey I'm not gonna point at an individual. I'll tell you what I saw happen. Whoever did it, this is what he did. But you guys decide who the who is. i I wasn't taking sides on that because I just, whatever, man. He was yeah. a 20 something year old black guy, somewhere between like five ten and six, one. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. but, um, uh, I know that from that trial that it was like a crazy, like bumbling thing, man. Like I was reluctant to participate in it at all. So like, I really don't believe in this, you know, but then I'm like, well, Somebody split this old man's head open, and this is the way we do it around here. They have a monopoly on doing this kind of process, and he is getting a jury trial on whatever I don't know, I guess you know and do the thing and he was convicted um but you know it' was for a real crime i mean he he brutally attacked an old man just to rob him, you and know the what I mean? there was no mitigating circumstance whatsoever in the thing it's just a premeditated criminal act of, of violent aggression towards a helpless person too it was the old man okay you know um i mean he survived i don't think he was okay no i think he was you know i i, I saw his son around after that a couple of times and they owned a couple of quickie more so i'd seen his son around and i guess his son had said that you know he had retired after that or whatever and they all took over the business from after that and this kind of thing. But,
0: um, well, dude, I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I'm so glad we finally got to hang out. I, know, I appreciate it, you we'll hopping on. Go. Yeah, I would feel bad for you. But um, yeah. uh, where, before we get off the call, where can people find you?
1: All right. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute. That's libertarianinstitute.org. And I'm the editorial director of antiwar.com, which everybody should read every day. And I wrote the books Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, and Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. And you can get the audiobooks of those. The audiobook of Enough Already just came out. Um, so you can get that Did you available read it? now. I'm at scotthorton.org. I got a bunch of interviews for you there. And um, that's about it. Oh, I'm on the radio on Sunday mornings in Los Angeles on KPFK 90.7 FM.
0: Did you read the audiobooks? Yes. Very cool. All right, man. Well, I'm going to end the stream and um, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much for having me.